I'm Elizabeth Slattery, and welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about opinions on Obamacare and guns, and I also spoke with former Wisconsin Solicitor General Misha Saitlin. So as I mentioned in last week's episode, I will be leaving the Heritage Foundation, so two of my colleagues will be taking the reins of SCOTUS 101. I wanted to take this opportunity to introduce them before we get into what's happening at the court this week. So Giancarlo Canaparo and Amy Swear are both scholars in Heritage's Legal Center. Giancarlo hails from the Bay Area and completed a clerkship for a district court judge in Miami not long ago. Now, as a Kentuckian, I have to point out that he's an accomplished equestrian. So, Giancarlo, would you consider yourself a workhorse or a show pony? <laughs> uh, definitely a workhorse. There's, there's not much showy over here. <laughs> and Amy Swear is a bit of an American nomad. She spent time during her childhood in Nebraska, go Cornhuskers, South Carolina, and Washington State. And Amy is Heritage's resident gun expert and enthusiast, so I'm sure she'll have a thing or two to say about the New York City gun case the justices punted on this week. So to kick things off, I wanted to pose a couple of questions to the two of you. So first up, who is your favorite writer on the court? Does this have to be current Supreme Court justices? Uh, Yeah, let's go with current. Okay, because if not, then the the immediate answer is Scalia. Um, So unpopular. That is the right answer. (laughs) Yes, it is. It is. Um, so even even though I I disagree with Elena Kagan uh, on, on quite a number of things, I, I think she is a, a very good and clear writer. Um, she has opinions that I found sort of enjoyable and easy to read, um, e- even though I, I often disagree with her. Um, I, I would go with Justice Kagan. You know, this is going to be very unoriginal, but I will also go with Justice Kagan. And point out that she, like Scalia, can from time to time really turn a phrase. And they're just a joy to read. That's true. And I think she was the the first justice to bring Dr. Seuss into a Supreme Court opinion. <laughs> um, okay, so is there a particular Supreme Court phrase that that you like? I'm thinking interpretive jiggery-pokery, I know it when I see it, things like that. I think I'd have to go with, just because it's the first thing that comes to mind, uh, Justice Gorsuch a while back uh, in a in a particular case I can't even remember the case he just the the phrase dogs breakfast oh, yeah. uh, he just it, two or three times in that case and he was so proud of it of this phrase of saying it's, it's the dog's breakfast um, that that really sticks out in in my mind just because it was so funny he he was so proud of that phrase yeah I think that might have been uh, the uh, the American Legion cross case from last term. And he was talking about the court's um, Establishment Clause jurisprudence being a dog's breakfast, which I had never heard that phrase before he used it a couple of times, I think, in the oral argument. But anyway, John Carlo, what about you? You know, that's a tough one. You, you, you picked two of my favorites. And uh, the, uh, <laughs> the I'll know it when I see it gets a lot of use in my daily life uh, because I'm always <laughs> around lawyers and, and I it never fails to get a laugh. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm desperate for easy material. So I'm going to go with, go with, uh, I know it when I see it. <laughs> Can we combine them? We'll know a dog's breakfast when we see it. <laughs> you know what, that, that Amy is why they pay you the big bucks. <laughs> okay. And then one more question before we get into uh, what, what's going on at the court this week. Um, so whose questions at oral argument do you enjoy the most? Uh, it, 
questions that I enjoy the most, it has to be Justice Breyer because <laughs> they're they're so long winded so often. And even though it's my favorite, I, I know a lot of times it's it's the advocate's least favorite. <laughs> it's like, here's here's two minutes of my oral argument gone. Um, but they are a lot of times quite enjoyable to listen to um, all two or three minutes of his questions. You know, my favorite uh, justices questions really get to the heart of, uh, I think, uh, you know, the value of oral argument. And and I think so my favorite justices questions would be Thomas. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, so you don't care for no, oral argument then? That's, that's, that's a bit of a cop out because it's his lack of questions. <laughs> hey, he occasionally makes a joke, OK? He does. He does. He does. That's fair. All right. Well, with that, let's get into uh, what has been happening at the court. So the justices released three opinions on Monday of this week. Uh, Amy, do you want to talk about the, the New York gun case? Sure. So the New York State pistol and rifle case uh, came out this week. I think it was a, a bit of a disappointment for a lot of people who were hoping this would be sort of the, the next big Second Amendment case. So in a 6-3 decision with a per curiam opinion, the court declared the case moot. It vacated the judgment of the Court of Appeals and remanded the case for, quote, such proceedings as are appropriate regarding the city's rule. Um, so if you remember the facts in this case, the petitioners were lawful handgun owners in New York City who sought declaratory and injunctive relief against enforcement of a New York City ordinance. That ordinance uh, effectively pro prevented the transportation of their lawfully possessed handguns to any place except one of seven gun ranges inside city limits, six of which were limited uh, to admission to members only. The petitioners under this law could not transport their handguns to second homes or to ranges or competitions outside the city limits, even if the handgun was stored in a hard-sided locked container um, and inaccessible to the gun owner. So during the seven years of litigation, uh, the lower courts rejected the petitioner's Second Amendment claims, and the Supreme Court last year granted certiorari. After certiorari was granted, the city amended its ordinance to allow the transportation of firearms to a second home or ranges outside of the city. And I think a lot of people suspected this was in part because they wanted to avoid a ruling on the merits. The petitioners in the city remained in dispute about the scope of the new rule with regard to stopping for gas, for food, uh, for restroom breaks along the way to the gun owner's second home or shooting ranges, as well as whether the possibility remained for the petitioners to seek damages in the future. The court noted that under the 1972 case Diffenderfer v. Central Baptist Church of Miami, Inc., its practice in similar instances of mootness is to vacate the judgment and remand for further proceedings in which the parties may, if necessary, amend their pleading or develop the record more fully. So Justice Kavanaugh concurred in the court's resolution of the procedural issues, uh, but in what amounts to now a fourth justice expressing a desire to take on a Second Amendment case in the near future, he noted that he too shares the dissent's concern that some federal and state courts may not be properly applying District of Columbia v. Heller and McDonald v. City of Chicago. He believes that the court should, quote, address that issue soon, perhaps in one of the several Second Amendment cases with petitions for certiorari now pending before the court. Alito, joined by Gorsuch in full and Thomas in part, dissented. They would have held that the case was not moot as respondents failed to meet the heavy burden of showing that it was impossible for the court to grant, quote, any effectual relief, whatever, to the prevailing party. Uh, they claimed that the petitioners had asked for unrestricted access to out-of-city ranges and, and second homes and that the laws, the amended laws restriction to reasonably necessary travel 
did not clearly grant such unrestricted access. Moreover, the dissent noted that the court has generally been wary of attempts to manufacture mootness in order to avoid adverse decisions. They would have proceeded to the case on the merits, and they would have found that the city's violation uh, of the Second Amendment was not a close question. Uh, so the city could point to no evidence of laws in place during the founding era that restricted gun owners to practicing inside city limits. Uh, and in a section not joined by Justice Thomas, Alito and Gorsuch called the city's public safety arguments weak on their face and completely unsubstantiated by the evidence. Again, I, I know this was, I think, disappointing to a lot of people who were hoping this would be sort of the next major Second Amendment case. But notably, there are several pending Second Amendment petitions that have been scheduled for conference this week. Uh, so we could potentially see a new grant in the near future, perhaps as early as Monday. Uh, these cases include a couple challenges to good cause requirements for concealed carry permits, um, such as Rogers v. Gruel out of New Jersey and Malpaso v. Pelosi out of Maryland, uh, and some challenges to bans on firearms deemed assault weapons, uh, such as Wilson v. Cook County out of Illinois and Warman v. Healy out of Massachusetts. So the uh, the Wall Street Journal uh, editorial board had a great op-ed this week called The White House Effect, and it was expressing concerns that some of the justices may have been swayed by an amicus brief filed by Senator Sheldon Whitehouse and a few other of his uh, Senate colleagues. In their brief, they said that the court uh, must heal itself or face efforts to restructure it. And they strongly encouraged the court not to rule on the merits of this case. Uh, so Justice Alito referenced that in his uh, that amicus brief in his dissent. And it seems that uh, perhaps some members of the court, unfortunately, were persuaded by uh, by that brief. Uh, so turning to Maine Community Health Options versus United States, just as a disclaimer, this case uh, has to do with the Affordable Care Act, but it has nothing to do with other constitutional challenges to the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. Uh, stay tuned for next term when the court considers a major constitutional challenge to that law. So in a, an opinion for eight members of the court, Justice Sotomayor uh, wrote the majority um, holding that Congress created an, an obligation for the federal government to pay health insurance providers for a portion of losses that they incurred after offering affordable insurance uh, to people who were either previously uninsured or underinsured. So Section 1342 of the Affordable Care Act incentivized insurers to assume the risk of offering coverage to um, riskier individuals by setting up what was called the Risk Corridors Program. Uh, and this program would reimburse insurers for some losses following a statutory formula for a period of three years. Uh, but insurers would have to pay a portion of any savings into the program if their costs were lower than expected. So uh, subsequent Republican-led uh, Congresses passed appropriations riders to limit the available funds in an effort to make this program budget neutral. Uh, and this ended up resulting in a $12 billion shortage. So several insurers sought to recover damages under the Tucker Act, this is the law that waives the federal government's sovereign immunity from certain monetary claims. And the federal circuit ruled for the government, finding that Congress had impliedly repealed its statutory obligation with those subsequent appropriations riders. So the Supreme Court disagreed and reversed, holding that Section 1342 expressly imposed a legal duty and did not limit the source of funds. Uh, further, Congress did not impliedly repeal that obligation because the appropriation riders did not show Congress's 
clear and manifest intent to repeal the underlying obligation. Uh, so Sotomayor explained that the government must show something more than the mere omission uh, to appropriate a sufficient sum. Uh, Justices Thomas and Gorsuch joined the majority, except for uh, one section that discussed legislative history, which is pretty on brand for both of them. Justice Alito dissented. Uh, He took issue with the court inferring a private right of action from Section 1342's requirement that the government shall pay for the insurer's loss. In his view, uh, this means any statute that can fairly be interpreted as mandating compensation will create a right of action to collect damages against the federal government. And this was despite uh, the court's recent trend of declining to recognize private rights of action not expressly created by Congress. And next up was the state of Georgia versus publicresource.org. In an opinion by the chief joined by Sotomayor, Kagan, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh, the court affirmed the 11th Circuit and held that annotations in the official code of Georgia are not protected as original works of authorship under the Copyright Act. We often give states, I think, a, a, a hard time for being slow to adapt to the times, but you've got to give Georgia some credit here for thinking creatively about how to make some money. They did was they <laughs> tried to take out a copyright over the annotations in their state code. These annotations included things like summaries of judicial opinions construing each opin- provision, the list of reference materials, uh, and this is all is assembled by the Code Revision Commission, which is a state entity. The respondent, a nonprofit, uh, which facilitates public access to government records and legal materials, posted the full code online, and the government of Georgia sued for copyright infringement with respect to the annotations. Applying a doctrine called the government's edicts doctrine, the court held that the annotations cannot be copyrighted. The doctrine, based on the principle that no one can own the law, means that legislators cannot copyright their work as legislatures, including explanatory and procedural materials they create in the discharge of their duties. The uh, branch of the legislature responsible for the code falls into this category. Thomas, Alito, Thomas joined by Alito and uh, almost entirely by Breyer, dissented, viewing the precedents creating the government's edict doctrine narrowly. Uh, these arose largely in the context of judicial opinions, and while judges are not authors of judicial opinions, uh, the precedents distinguish materials such as notes prepared by an official court reporter. So thus, Thomas said, it must follow from our precedents that statutes and regulations cannot be copyrighted, but accompanying notes lacking legal force can be. He continued, in my view, the majority's uncritical extrapolation of precedent is inconsistent with the judicial role. He would leave to Congress whether to change the Copyright Act. Ginsburg, joined by Breyer, dissented because uh, the annotations in her view were not created in a legislative capacity. They are, in her words, descriptive rather than prescriptive and aim to inform the citizenry at large rather than those seated in legislative chambers. That was it for opinions this week. Uh, there are a few orders in the list. In uh, Trump versus Mazar and Trump versus Deutsche Bank, these are the cases uh, stemming from House committees attempting to subpoena President Trump's financial records. The parties in those cases are required to file briefs by next Friday, addressing whether the political question doctrine bears on the courts hearing these cases. And there is, of course, a third case stemming uh, from a New York state grand jury investigation that the court uh, had scheduled to hear along with these two cases involving the, the House uh, the House attempt to subpoena President Trump's financial records. Okay, the court also announced the rules of the road for the telephonic oral arguments that will be coming up next week. 
the advocates will have two minutes to give an opening uh, unless they have divided argument time and then they only have one minute. And then the justices will ask questions by seniority. So Justices Sotomayor and Ginsburg will have to wait their turns, even though they are known for jumping in uh, right away. So Bob Barnes of the Washington Post has a great piece uh, that came out this week about how the advocates are preparing for their telephonic arguments next week. Uh, he he did an interview with Lisa Blatt, who will be the first lawyer up in, in this historic uh, telephonic argument on Monday. And she talked about how her kids are in charge of keeping the dog quiet and making sure no one rings the doorbell while she's arguing. Um, and also the lawyers from the Solicitor General's office will be wearing their mor- morning suits uh, with tails, even from home. The court's also going to make the audio available live, and that is uh, a pretty big step for the tech-averse court. So we will see how those arguments go and report back next week. Uh, so next up, um, an interview with the first Solicitor General of Wisconsin. Misha Saitlin is a partner at Troutman Sanders. Welcome to SCOTUS 101. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. So let's start out with your clerkships. Early on in your career, you clerked on the Ninth Circuit for Judge Alex Kaczynski and then on the D.C. Circuit for Judge Janice Rogers-Brown. So how did you end up with two appellate clerkships? Funny story. I had the Brown clerkship set up for a year uh, later, and I was going to go to private practice for a year and then start with uh, Judge Brown. And then Judge Kaczynski called me in the middle of my year uh, at the law firm and said whether I could clerk uh, for him for the balance of the year until I started with Judge Brown. And of course, I, I accepted it. I had uh, uh, two uh, very uh, meaningful clerkships. So tell me about some of the highlights uh, in both of those chambers. Oh, well, I mean, the highlights were really the the legal work we got to do and the and, and getting to um, help write and work on so many important opinions, both in the Ninth Circuit and on, on the D.C. Circuit. When you are just a a young lawyer first coming out of law school to get to work uh, on such important matters was quite a thrill, and I learned quite a lot uh, from both clerkships. So then you went on to clerk for Justice Anthony Kennedy on the Supreme Court. What were some of the highlights uh, during your time in his chambers? Well, that was obviously you know what I just said about the appellate clerkships when you're talking about clerking at the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, especially as such a young lawyer. That was just a, a thrill to be in that building and to be part of the discussion and in the decision process, helping Justice Kennedy reach his decisions um, was just something that, you know, you can't even imagine how great that is for, for a young lawyer. That's obviously something I'll, I'll look back on uh, my entire career. So after your clerkships, uh, you spent a couple of years at Gibson Dunn, and then you moved to West Virginia to serve as general counsel in the attorney general's office. So tell me about your time in West Virginia and also uh, your time working with Albert Lynn, who has also been on this podcast. Oh, great. Yeah, no, Albert was fantastic. Uh, he, he brought me in to work, on, uh, work as part of his team and, you know, more importantly, as part of General Morrissey's team in West Virginia. You know, our focus was this was in the uh, second term of the Obama administration, and that's when he famously said, I'm going to use my phone and my pen to basically re- rewrite all of law, including as part of the war on coal. So we saw ourselves as the forefront in the fight against his war on coal, and we had great success in, in getting uh, most of what President Obama tried to do with his pen and his phone stopped. So uh, then you became the first Solicitor General of Wisconsin. So how did you end up in Wisconsin coming from West Virginia then? It was part of my work uh, with Albert and, and uh, General Morrissey uh, in West Virginia. We would 
bring together big coalitions of states to fight back against the overreach of the Obama administration. And one of the states that was uh, heavily involved in that effort was the state of Wisconsin. So as part of those litigations, I got to know the folks uh, in Wisconsin really well. And so when they're um, they were setting up the Solicitor General's office. They uh, called to interview me, and eventually the, uh, uh, General Schimmel, who is now uh, Judge Schimmel, uh, was kind enough to extend, extend me the offer, and I got the honor to be Wisconsin Solicitor General for three years. So that must have been an exciting time to get to be the first uh, Solicitor General and really develop the office, right? Yeah, it was great. We had a you know, a team of eventually it was six lawyers, and we you know we started everything. We had we came up with all the procedures. We set up all. We had a little you know, handbook of the way we did things, and we had you know a lot of bright young, talented lawyers that were that were working in the office, and we had great success. We we won almost every case we did. I think we did. We won like 40 out of 42 cases in three years, which was quite remarkable. Not a bad record. Uh, so during your time as SG, you argued two cases at the U.S. Supreme Court. So tell me about those experiences. Right. So they, the first one um, was Murr versus State of Wisconsin, which was a regulatory takings case, which probably a lot of folks outside of the uh, property bar haven't read about. <laughs> um, you know, the moment I remember, I guess, most starkly is I got up and I was making my presentation and Justice Kennedy, who I clerked for and considered him one of one of my great mentors told me my, my position that I was articulating was wooden, which is obviously not something that uh, Justice Kennedy liked. Now, ultimately, we did get his vote, and we ended up prevailing uh, five to three. This was before uh, Justice Gorsuch was um, on the bench. Um, so that was a thrill. And then the next case, which was much more high profile, was uh, Gill versus Whitford, which was the first of the two big political gerrymandering cases that came to the U.S. Supreme Court uh, over the last three years. And uh, it was a ruling by a three-judge panel that the Wisconsin um, Assembly maps, which is the Wisconsin equivalent of the House of Representatives, um, were a political gerrymander. Our lead theory in the case was that uh, the plaintiffs did not have standing. We ultimately prevailed 9-0 on the standing issue, and I was quite proud to prevail 9-0 in such a politically contentious case uh, on the lead argument that we had. So have you sort of developed any pre-argument rituals or traditions? Do you have a pump-up song, anything like that? Well, I guess going back to law school, I would always listen to uh, Sweet Child of Mine before uh, (laughs) before every law school exam, and I, I do... Blare that uh, in my in my uh, AirPods before uh, oral argument, but more seriously, it's the mood courts that really help you. Uh, these are kind of practice sessions where practitioners um, that are experienced at the Supreme Court will basically pretend to be the Supreme Court justices, <laughs> and they will grill you. Um, basically, do a dry run of what your oral argument will be, and it helps kind of hone your arguments, hone where you want to lead the court where you want to make your transitions, what danger areas you should avoid. And that is an invaluable tool that, you know, I would never do any oral argument without doing at least one moot court. And at the U.S. Supreme Court, I would never do one without doing at least uh, three. So you've also argued before the D.C. Circuit, including Mm -hmm. a case challenging the Clean Power Plan. Now, this was a multi-lawyer, seven-hour oral argument. Tell me about that experience. Right. So that was... 
A very major um, ch- rule challenge is one uh, of the centerpiece of President Obama's war on coal. The The regulation was so complicated uh, that the, the court decided it needed seven hours of oral argument. I got the uh, – I guess I drew the short end of the straw, so I got to do the, the technical arguments. So the, the case had a lot of big legal arguments about the authority of EPA and things of that sort. There were other lawyers handling that. I got tasked with discussing the – the technical problems with the Clean Power Plan, which were quite significant and inter- interacted a lot with why the regulation could not be permitted to stand. Now, you know, there were a couple challenges with that. One is that the judges, like most people, were more interested in the constitutional arguments mm-hmm. and the big legal arguments. So those were put first and the technical arguments were put at the end of the day. And also technical arguments, while they are important, are also more dry. So I had the challenge of knowing that they would be many hours into their day. <laughs> also, I would be presenting really dry subject matter. So I was worried about losing the bench. Mm-hmm. So what I did was I wanted to walk through the technical problems with the Clean Power Plan by having some specifics and in a way that I knew the court would engage with me. So what I did is I decided to pick one particular state and how the Clean Power Plan was going to affect that state based on EPA's own numbers. So the, the day before oral argument, I sent the court a letter saying, I'm going to be discussing appendix page, um, whatever, 500 and whatever, uh, at oral argument so that all the judges would have that piece of paper in front mm-hmm. of them. And then I actually walked them through the numbers of what the status quo was, what the Clean Power Plan was requiring the states to do for one particular state so that they could see how impractical this plan was and so that they would have to actually engage with me on a particular on particular numbers mm-hmm. so they would be paying attention. Now, I knew they would pay attention, but be really engaged with me on something very specific. And I thought that was effective because they all had that piece of paper in front of them and they all walked through the numbers with me. Mm-hmm. So now you're back in private practice. Do you have any seven-hour arguments coming up? Uh, n- nothing seven hour. I've got a, a Second Circuit oral argument coming up here in about two weeks about when, uh, if ever, landlords can be held uh, accountable for their tenants selling counterfeit goods. I have a, 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 an oral argument in April before the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Um, Wisconsin has a very odd jurisprudence on our um Vetoes. Most people think of vetoes like at the federal level where the president doesn't want a bill. Uh, he vetoes it. Mm-hmm. Uh, some states have a line item veto where a president can strike out certain budget provisions. In Wisconsin, uh, the court has held for a long time that uh, the governor can strike out sentence fragments. So what governors do is they basically rewrite legislation, mm. coming up with new laws that the legislature never enacted. And the Supreme Court of Wisconsin is reconsidering whether it should come more in line with the original understanding of what a veto is, not allowing the governor to basically write new laws in the guise of, of vetoing. So that should be a pretty interesting case. Yeah, it sounds like some interesting work. Well, one final question um, I ask all guests at SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? Well, you know, one of the great thrills of clerking on the Supreme Court is that you get to have lunch as a chambers with each of the justices and they take you to kind of, you take them to kind of their favorite places. Mm -hmm. And so 
the most memorable lunch of my life was when we took Justice Scalia to lunch. It was the the Kennedy clerks took Justice Scalia to lunch. It was the end of the term. Uh, all the opinions had been put out, so he was feeling pretty expansive. <laughs> and we went to his favorite Italian restaurant, which is the best Italian restaurant in the city, Tosca. And he it was one bottle of red wine, two <laughs> bottles of red wine, three bottles of red wine. And then we were all like feeling pretty good. At the end of the lunch, he, he says, we got to all get grappa. So we were all talking, just Scalia, drinking wine, grappa. <laughs> and then at the end of the lunch, he, he drops his voice really low and he says, gentlemen, one foot in front of the other. They'll never be able to tell. <laughs> and so, of course, I would love to have, you know, one-on-one lunch with Justice Scalia, you know, that, since that was the most memorable lunch of my life to be able to do that. But one-on-one would be you know, obviously an amazing thrill. What, what a great experience. Well, Misha, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. All right, this week and next week on Trivia, because it's going to be Elizabeth's last couple of weeks with us, we're going to play Stump Elizabeth for Trivia Hour. Oh, boy. So this week, <laughs> this week we have a few questions of varying difficulties, and we'll see if we can stump uh, the master herself. <laughs> so Bring it on. I'm are, excited. There are two justices in the court's history that left the court and rejoined it later. Uh, do you know who those are? Uh, yes. So uh, John Rutledge, who was one of one of the first justices, and then he left to go to South Carolina to be on uh, a state court because he thought that was a better gig. And then he was recess appointed by George Washington to be chief justice. And he um, he was rejected by the Senate and then tried to commit suicide. But he he went on to survive. So he's one. And then um, did did Charles Evan Hughes leave and come back? Is he the other one? That is correct. All right. I think did he run for I think maybe he left to run for president and then he came back as chief justice. Is that right? You're right. So his his you know, and I got to be fair, these these I thought were some of the harder questions. So well done, Elizabeth. (laughs) Well, thank you. Charles Evan Hughes story is really quite interesting. He was nominated by President Taft and served as an associate justice from 1910 to 16. He left the bench to run as the Republican presidential candidate against Woodrow Wilson, but lost. Uh, he returned to private practice. Then he served as Presidents Harding and Coolidge's Secretary of State, returned again to private practice, and then was nominated by Hoover to replace Taft, the man who put him on the court in the first place. Can you imagine, you know, we, we hear a lot today about people accusing the justices of being uh, overly political, but can you imagine today if there were justices who were cycling in and out of the court to go run for president or hold other, you know, uh, political office. I, I think it's just, you know, the, the court has changed so much since then. Okay, moving on to the second question. Uh, since you nailed the first one, this is a three-part question with oh each part getting more difficult. This justice resigned after impeachment proceedings began against him for shady financial dealings with an indicted Wall Street financier. Uh, Abe Fortas. Yes. Okay, now upon returning to private practice, Fortas argued and won this famous Sixth Amendment case. Ooh, uh, let me think. Famous Sixth Amendment case. Um, was it like Miranda? Wait, that's Fifth Amendment, isn't it? 
Oh, do we give her a second chance? Is Miranda fifth and sixth kind of? Well, anyway, I'm I'm not sure what what case, but that's really interesting. <laughs> that he, was, uh, he went back into private practice. The the case is Gideon v. Wainwright. Oh, Gideon v. Wainwright. yeah, of course. And then part three, part okay. three. So she got one for two. Can she bat two for three? This justice called Fortas's argument in Gideon the best oral argument he had heard in all his time on the bench. Oh, gosh. I don't know. Um, okay, so I have to think about, this was the l- late 60s. Oh, who would it have been? I don't know. Was it Justice Brennan? Oh, yes, give me a hint. I'll give you a hint. This justice was at the same time that Fortas was under impeachment uh, proceedings was uh, also a target of similar proceedings for fin- oh. for shady dealings of him- his own. Oh, William O. Douglas. Nailed it. Nailed it. We'll, <laughs> we'll give it to you. We'll give it to Wild, you. Wild Bill O. Douglas. <laughs> Two, two-thirds of a point in, in this three-part question. You know, oh, you're, do, you're doing well. You're doing well so far. That's still, uh, that's still four out of five right answers. So last question. We're uh, continuing the theme of justices who have left the bench. Um, this retired justice gave what one writer described as one of the worst arguments I'd ever heard by one of the smartest men I've ever known. So this was a retired justice who argued a case after he retired. Correct. And he gave one of the worst arguments, uh, by one of the smartest men. Hmm. (sighs) Who could it be? Um, was it, uh, let's see. I don't know. I don't know. Can you give me a hint? Well, I can give you a hint, which is part of the second part of this question, which is the case itself. The case that Uh he argued was an antitrust case involving Major League Baseball and has one of the most maligned introductions to a majority opinion in Supreme Court history. Oh, I feel like it's on the tip of my tongue. Um, I don't know. I actually don't know the answer to either part. <laughs> <laughs> it is Arthur Goldberg. Oh, yes, you... yes, yes. <laughs> Do you know the case now? Go, go ahead. Go ahead. The case is Flood versus Kuhn. It was an antitrust case involving Major League Baseball in which the majority opinion began with a seven page um, ode to American baseball. <laughs> But we won't recite that whole thing here now. <laughs> and that's it for trivia. I, you know, I think that we all, all in all, well done. Well done. Those, there were some hard questions in there. Yeah, there were some, uh, some hard ones in there and definitely educational. And so I, I enjoyed learning some new things today on trivia. All right. Well, thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please leave us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Thalia Rampersad, and Mark Guiney. For more information, visit heritage.org.